Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole, coming to you from an undisclosed location. I'm kidding. For those watching YouTube, I am on a mini vacation here in California, but I got to comment yet every week. Give you the goodness here. And I'm going to be going a little bit more off of the top of the head here, but the analysis that I'm going through today, uh, the big one's going to be the Nick Chubb article that I came out with uh, going about running back value, how much it's worth. Uh, I can kind of quote that off the top of the head. So that's pretty good. And all the different conclusions there. I think it's a really interesting talking point because uh, the reaction shows you how almost anyone, depending upon whether they were a running back truther or running backs don't matter person can come away with the conclusion that they find satisfactory from it. But I'll dig into it a little bit more uh, about everything that goes into that. And I'm also going to hit some stuff about fantasy football and wide receivers that you may want to target in your drafts based upon this expected points tool. I talked about running backs last week, so we're going to do that at the end. But right up front, uh, I want to talk about the news. But before we get into that, let's talk PFF. And for those who don't know, we have a bunch of different podcasts available here that I want to hit, especially my friends, uh, George Jahuri and Eric Eager, who do the PFF forecast has been really useful for me heading into the season, looking at all the different betting angles there. I know we have analytical types listening to this who would probably enjoy that. And for season long subscribers for just seven you're going to get access to the fantasy football draft guide, player rankings, everything else. My rankings are in there, which are being updated constantly. I also work with the projections uh, that come as part of the, of, of the site, as far as determining the shares that the players get. And then we do a lot of modeling, uh, for the efficiency to get those numbers. So all that's available, cheat sheets, everything else you want uh, will be available there to you. So go ahead and check that out. Uh, news things, you know, I don't want to get too much into the topical stuff, but I will discuss briefly the Josh Allen contract. I mean, those who listen to this podcast have kind of heard a mutual love fest with myself and with Jason Fitzgerald in his podcast over at OTC. So this is more in his you know, his ballywick, you could say his uh, core competency is talking about the cap stuff. So I suggest everyone go and look at his content. Uh, look at what Brad Spiegelberger puts out here for us. He's also done some work with Jason in the past. He has some great, great information there. And he does quick reaction pieces based upon the news that's breaking. So I would say check out those two. Um, my take on it, and I really think the biggest thing that we can take away from the Allen extension Beyond the certainty aspect, and I'm going to hit that, whether or not we should be certain that Josh Allen is the guy going forward. But I think the biggest thing we can really take away from the contract is the length, right? Uh, the six years. And it's very interesting how this shift has happened. I'm going to call it a shift. It's more like a bifurcation has happened between how different quarterbacks are looking at their contract extensions. And if you remember when the Deshaun Watson deal was originally being talked about before his extension, what happened in the, you know, as early as possible as it could, it happened in the, the off season following his third season last year, there was talk about potentially wanting it to only be a three-year extension, which, you know, would have been unprecedented for a second contract for a quarterback for that first extension. And, that was the move, right? Even on some of these veterans that you saw, the thought was quarterbacks are maintaining their play longer and longer. The cap is continually going up uh, before this COVID 
speed bump that we've gotten here. But we're going to see that really accelerating in the next couple of years, especially as the new TV contracts kick in, the 17th game kicks in. Uh, really 2023 is going to be the year you're going to see a huge jump there in the, in the cap. So as that happening, we've just seen over and over again that the longer the contract, the worse it ended up looking for a quarterback where these guys really don't play themselves out of being good, right? Uh, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, we know who these quarterbacks are after their first rookie contract in the NFL. So the move has been going shorter and shorter on those to get back to free agency, to re-up based upon new, more optimistic assumptions for where the cap is going to go. Um, also to just be able to go to your team more quickly with leverage too. I think that's important. If you're looking at you know, uh, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, guys who have been a little bit dissatisfied later on in their contracts, the closer they are to the end of that contract, the more leverage they have to impose upon the team for a, you know, a, a bunch of different reasons, not just to restructure the money on the side, but maybe to have a more say in what's going on, on on the football side of things. So that had been the trend. Then we have the Patrick Mahomes contract, right? That happened last year, the 10 year contract, a huge number. I mean, 45 million a year is a, is a big, big number. Uh, there was talk about whether or not he would be, you know, your first $50 million a year quarterback. I mean, we it got up to 45 here, but it's 10 years. And it's friendly to the Chiefs for a couple of different reasons. One is in the short term, they're really pressing in on this window. I mean, they're going to have many windows, Super Bowl windows with Patrick Mahomes. But with this first window here, his cap number really wasn't going up for what it would have been in his fourth year and what it would have been in the fifth year option. And it's really going to be an explosion in his cap number in a couple of seasons. And that's when uh, a few seasons, and that's when the chiefs are probably going to have to restructure that going forward. So that happened and that kind of threw off the whole market. And it was really like, what, what, what's going on here? That's very strange that he would want to do a 10 year deal because, you know, five, six years into this deal, it's very likely that we're well, not very likely, but it, I would say it's more likely than not that you're going to look back on that and say, you know, it probably wouldn't have been better to do a four-year extension and then be hitting the market again right here with these new, more optimistic assumptions. So that happened. And I think a big part of it was that Patrick Mahomes was very bought in on the Chiefs, was bought in on Andy Reid, on the system, on everything that's going on there. And his willingness to take that deal, to me, it wasn't like it was a negotiating concession to get something else. It was just really positive feelings that they that that. Uh, Brett Veach and the front office was able to leverage and they're also able to leverage that into other contracts that they've gotten some good extensions from Kelsey, uh, from Chris Jones and, and others. So then we have that. Then after that, we have Dak Prescott, where we went back to the more traditional way where he says, I'm going to take the four years. I'm not going to, the Cowboys wanted five. He had way too much leverage after going through the two, um, the two uh, franchise tags, way too much leverage. They can't afford to bump it up third uh, franchise tag. So he had that leverage. He got the four years he wanted. He got the 40 million that he wanted. Um, and he'll be back in the market in you know a few years, being able to apply leverage and some good leverage too, because it's really difficult to even think about franchise tagging him going forward after having that already been done. Now we flip back to Josh Allen. So we had three quarterbacks that were going to be uh, resigning this year. I did a podcast a few weeks ago about how I think that these contracts are a little bit less risky than the public perception that you're really locking yourself into someone because of the fact that if you look at Goff, if you look at Wentz, 
the teams were able to get out with okay outcomes, even though the fact that those two quarterbacks failed, right? Uh, Goff was able to be thrown in as part of a trade where it doesn't look like it was a detriment to being able to make a move and get Matthew Stafford. Wentz was able to be traded for what could have been a first round pick if he did not uh, suffer an injury here. And now it's looking more like a second round pick. So yeah, big dead money associated with those, but did not derail the franchises. This one here, much higher level of money. I mean, those, those quarterbacks were able to take discounts and were willing to take discounts because of either a perception of not being an elite quarterback when it comes to golf and then injury and some risks there for Wentz. And so Allen's getting the big money. He's getting the 43 million. It's a little bit of a risk. I know when I come in with my quarterback rankings, everyone jumped all over me for the fact that according to the Bayesian updating, which incorporates not only recent history, but history further back on how well players have played that Allen was 11th. I believe he didn't quite make the top 10. I said, you know, in my own personal opinion, if I'm adjusting rankings there, I'd be willing to put him up above Baker Mayfield who's in front of him, up above a couple of other guys and into that, you know, seven to 10 range. The thing with Allen is it was weird is he's probably perceived. He was the biggest lock of these guys to get this contract early, even though he's only had one good year of performance because he was really on that elite level. And the team seems very bought in on him. And he did, the production he had the season in a way that people love yeah he's doing the running yeah he's 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 been very productive that way but they threw the ball a ton and he became a guy where you said you know what in these really difficult situations there's pressure if it's third and long um if we just need you to throw the ball a ton and really put the team on your back he showed he could do that at least for one season right in the 2020 season so that's why he was the most likely guy to get it now i'm a I'm a little bit more skeptical going forward on what he would do than public perception, but I'm high enough on him where I don't think this was a hugely bad deal, uh, especially because of the years they're getting. The six years really helps spread this out over a long period of time. It helps lower the initial cap hits. And again, like I said, Allen can't really come back to the team with any credible leverage or need to renegotiate or press needs upon the team for quite a long time. I mean, we saw with Rogers here when he had a few years left on his deal, he got a quote unquote concession, but it was probably what the Packers were willing to do anyway, which was move on after the 2021 season. Um, Allen is just not going to be in a place to force that issue uh, going forward for quite a while now, because remember we're talking about a six year extension on the back of two years still left in his contract. So an eight year window now that they that they have him you know it's a 12 year window for Patrick Mahomes so these are just enormously locked in and I think in a similar way to Mahomes I think Allen is bought in on the bills I think he likes the way that the fan base responds to him the way that they've really been locked in there's been no question about him despite the fact that his play especially in his rookie season but also in his second season was not great he hasn't really performed that well in the playoffs uh, both years but you don't really hear much rumbling about that whereas you hear a lot of rumbling about Lamar Jackson, is he really the guy or not? So I think when you look at the length of these contracts, I think it's a good proxy for how much the quarterback is bought in on the team, bought in on the front office, bought in on wanting to make this happen. And they're giving up leverage to do that. They're potentially giving up the chance to go to the market again earlier for even bigger payday because they like the team. They want it locked in. They want to set an example for then other contracts to utilize this Super Bowl window. So that would be my big thing. Like I said, for more technical things, go to Jason Fitzgerald to have some great information there. Um, how this affects Lamar and affects Baker. I've seen people say, well, Lamar should get this amount or even more. Eh, I don't think so. I think Allen 
justified or not, and I would say not justified by some of my projections when it comes to Lamar versus Lamar Jackson, I think Allen was perceived as being the top guy in this class now of the 2018 class. Uh, weird to say that when Lamar Jackson two seasons ago was the unanimous MVP, but that is the case. So I do not think that Lamar Jackson is going to get a bigger contract. Will he get the same contract? Maybe. Was he willing to take six years? I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Lamar feels that same sort of warmth from the fan base there and from the football community, maybe around the Ravens generally that Josh Allen did. Says there's been so many questions swirling about Lamar Jackson. Um, I, I don't know. He may have to take something down. I think Baker definitely is not going to hit that 43 million mark. And again, he doesn't seem to me like someone who's going to be willing to take the longer window contract um, as, as super bought in on the team. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. I'm not sure. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if Baker was somewhere closer to the Dak Prescott number of 40 million if they did an extension. And because of that, because of the weird optics of the team not being willing to give him as much money as Josh Allen, that means it's more likely to play out. Same thing with Lamar Jackson. I think rather than just inking a similar deal, I think those two guys are more likely to play out this fourth year, have either another sample of good play or another sample of questionable play. So then both teams will reset and renegotiate going into that fifth year option. And that is my expectation. All right. Ad read number two here. Talk about Western and Southern. In these uncertain times, life is full of questions like, when should I start thinking about life insurance? But however difficult these questions may be, Western and Southern can help you answer them. Backed by over 130 years of experience, together we can look ahead and leave the unknown behind. Western and Southern Financial Group, life insurance, retirement, and investments, compensated endorser, products issued by member companies of Western and Southern Financial Group, Cincinnati, Ohio. All right, let's get into the Nick chubb contract and not just the contract but the analysis i did around how much running backs are worth so i hope that analytics twitter is not too upset at me because i somewhat purposefully i'll say almost 100 percent purposefully threw myself and the nerds under the bus with how i framed my initial tweet when I sent out the article, which got a lot of play and retweets and some quote tweets attacking the nerds. And I phrase that by saying, by using this PFF plus minus methodology, which I'll talk about. And I think applying plus minus to the NFL is a really interesting concept that, that we'll talk about. Um, by doing that, I found that great runners like Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb add a surprising amount of value. And that's definitely true. I was surprised by the numbers that I came up with for how much in a points added sort of framework that they were able to add and therefore how many wins that they were able to add, right? Um, that they can justify, that they produced enough to justify big money. Now, the caveat, and then I listed some caveats in following tweets, and of course those don't get picked up as much. Um, and what I'm saying can produce enough to justify big money means they literally have had seasons that are very, very valuable. That doesn't mean that the predictiveness is worth big money. It doesn't mean that the substitution that you can have by going with other ways of filling the backfield makes them worth big money. But standalone, looking at how much they produce as far as the numbers are concerned, they can justify big money. And let's talk about what some of those numbers were. 
So actually, let me, let me rewind. Let me go back to methodology. So a lot of people probably hadn't seen this, but I, when I, when I came in to starting with PFF, um, I was really excited about the participation data that PFF has, right? So on every play, we know whether the player is in, in or not. And the reason I was excited about that is teasing out value. You have to try and figure out whether someone is on or off the field, you want to figure out what they're doing, what, how they're affecting things beyond what their stats say. Now, this doesn't apply as much to running value, right, for a running back, but it was, I started with receivers, and I thought that was really interesting, really in light of the fact that, like, we, we can't figure out a good way to quantify some of these deep threats. And Will Fuller was the example I was using because there's a really big, plus minus um, EPA number on dropbacks for Deshaun Watson with Will Fuller in the game and without him in the game where he was basically superstar best quarterback in the NFL with Will Fuller in the game. And when Fuller wasn't in the game, he was a slightly above average quarterback according to those numbers. But the thing is, of course, you, there's a lot of noise in these single player plus minuses. And that's why there should be a great, great degree of skepticism versus in other sports where there are, there's a few different factors why other sports are better. One, bigger samples, right? So you have more in the NBA of people being on and off the court. There are only five players on, the, on each team on the court at one time. So isolating the effect of that particular player through, through those splits is more interesting. Um, you have kind of set rotations, right? So every player in the NFL, I mean, sorry, in the NBA is going to be off the court for a certain amount of time. So you're going to get a substantial off sample in the NFL, you know, a lot of receivers are running almost every single route. So they're in there on almost every single passing play. Other positions, in particular, the quarterback and offensive line are really in there for every single play unless they are injured or it's a blowout. And even if it's a blowout, the linemen are still normally playing. Joe Thomas famously did not miss a snap for almost his entire career until right in, in the end of the last season where he had a, he had a season-ending end, injury. Or maybe it was the season before his last season. Um, so, so if someone never misses a snap, how do you judge their effect by being on or off the field, right? It's, it's pretty difficult to do. If a receiver is running every single route, how do you judge their effect by being on and off the field? So what I came up with was this methodology of combining player clustering. So coming up with bigger sets of data and the idea of plus minus or on off splits. So you would take other stats, whether it's volume stats, like how many routes a receiver runs a game for the running back analysis is how many carries they get per game. You bring it together with um, efficiency stats, with grading that we have, which is an independent measure. Uh, you put it together with um, different measures of, Tackles avoided is what I use for running backs. I also use explosive runs to try to capture the difference between like a Chris Johnson type in the past is um, back when he was uh, CJ 2K, not um, CJ YPC three, which was three yards per carry. Um, and the, the, the try to capture what, what type of running back they are. Are they a high volume running back? Are they a low volume running back? Are they someone who broke a lot of tackles or not? All these different things. And then you cluster the players together to try to minimize the noise. So if there might be a lot of a noise, let's say with Nick Chubb 
let's take Nick Chubb, for example, whether he's running or not, there might be a lot of noise there because Kareem Hunt is the backup and Kareem Hunt's pretty, pretty damn good, right? Whereas most guys wouldn't have that good of a backup. There might be noise because of the situations. Maybe he's used in more favorable situations than some other running backs and so on and so forth. So you cluster all these guys together. So you get clusters and I have about a thousand running back seasons that I'm looking at. And I cluster these seasons and I get different groupings. And the example I give here is grouping them into 12 clusters. So you're getting like, you know, 90 running backs into these clusters. And through that, you're going to get rid of some of the noise. And then you look at the entire cluster and you say, when this, when these running backs are on the field in this cluster versus when their teammates were running the ball in these clusters. Okay. And the, um, and, and the, uh, the information here is going to tell you how good that cluster is, right? So you can apply that cluster to each one of the players in the cluster and get a little bit better information there. Now, you wouldn't just even want to look at that one cluster, though, because there's certain running backs who can dominate the cluster through their volume and so forth and so, and so on and so forth. So what I do is, 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 an, is an iteration to the process where... <clears throat> I'm clustering this a thousand different times. I'm using bigger clusters and using smaller clusters. I'm using some features in some clusters, some not in other clusters. So every running back is getting put into different, you know, a thousand different types of groupings, right? And then averaging those all together to figure out that exact player uh, plus minus. And then I take it even a step further, which probably this is unnecessary to keep on talking about, but I take it even a step further and I say, okay, rather than just taking the results based upon all that clustering, there's still noise and clustering. I'm now going to take that and I'm going to regress the, the features that, of these clusters and the results of these clusters. And then I'm going to just figure out a, a linear regression there and then apply that back to the individual player, which is also similar to some earlier versions in the NBA that they did with statistical plus minus, where rather than looking at actual on-off splits, they looked at on-off splits they looked at the actual on-off splits. They said, what sort of stats do players have with those on-off splits? And then they estimated on-off based upon stats. So it's just another way of, of really getting further and further into it, into it. And the interesting thing you find here is there are some big seasons for running backs. And that was the headline key. That was what got the running back truthers and running back matters people to jump in here is the fact that Adrian Peterson had the best season that we've had in the quote unquote PFF era, which is a 15 year window from when PFF started tracking data in 2006 to 2020 and 2012, Adrian Peterson, he gained, according to this methodology, assuming all the different clusters that, that Peterson was a part of versus their, their replacements. You look at, I look at the rate at which we're assuming. So we're assuming on a per play basis, how much is that running back adding? And it's pretty huge. It's, 0.2 0.2 EPA expected points added um, on every single time that Peterson's carrying the ball is the, is the assumption. And then multiply that by the fact that he had about 350 rushing attempts that season. And we come out to around 70 points now translating points into wins. And I know we have our PFF war statistic, which, which talks about uh, wins a lot. Translating points into wins is a little bit difficult. What people have done, and I think this is a simple way, which captures like 99% of how you translate points into wins is they've just simply said for teams, let's look at their point differentials. Um, and then at, for the season, and let's look how many wins they have above or below 500 and then how many points per win. 
So it's about 35-ish, somewhere between 30 and 35 points in points differential, calculates out to a win. So he has about 70 points, so we'd assume that's about two wins. So Adrian Peterson adding two wins is a, is a pretty big deal, right? Um, and that's just from rushing the ball. If we look at what Adrian Peterson, according to our war statistic, uh, let me just look it up real fast. Sorry, it's going to be a little shaky on the camera as I'm doing this. If you look at Adrian Peterson, according to our war statistic, you know, his best season in 2012, he was 0.27 war. So not much war at all. We're not really giving that much credit in this calculation. I'm finding a much higher amount. But as I'll talk about with a lot of the top seasons here, whether it's Peterson at around 70 points in 2012, Derrick Henry over 50 points this last season with, with you know, 378 rushing attempts in 2020. Uh, LaShawn McCoy in 2013 with about, uh, 50 points to Marco Murray, 2014, 47 points. And then Alfred Morris, interesting, 2012, uh, Chris Johnson, 2009. And then so on, Dalvin Cook, 2020, Adrian Peterson again, Ezekiel Elliott, 2016. These were all the, the top seasons. So this is producing a lot more value than you would have gotten from our war statistics. So I think it's an interesting contrast. I'm finding a lot more value for this rushing thing. Um, and we look at Nick Chubb, uh, just specifically to dig into Chubb. He is, was 22.6 points for 2020, and he's someone who's been consistently good. He's been around that 20-point mark all three seasons, despite the fact that he does not have super huge volume, right? He was like a 200-rush sort of, sort of guy throughout his career, maybe a little bit more in some of the earlier seasons, and not as much last season because he was injured. So he hasn't been a super high-volume running back, but he's consistently producing that number. So that's a number, again, that's two-thirds of a win, right? Um, so it's a pretty decent number. Uh, it's much more than what we're seeing. Like, again, if we go to war for someone like Nick Chubb, uh, our war number, he was at 0.146 for 2020. I would have estimated a higher amount. Now let's get into the caveats. You know, this is when the running backs matter people are dancing in the streets, high-fiving each other. PFF is dead. PFF has always been wrong. Uh, nerds are, have been defeated. Uh, nerd on nerd crime here from me writing this article. Now let's get into the caveats, which we really need to get into. Uh, first is something that's been well-trod territory, and that is well-trodden territory, and that is that it's less stable for runners than it is for, I'll compare it to receivers to make it easy. I found when I'm looking at the rate at which someone produces uh, the PFF plus minus, so the per play, per play plus minus, say that 10 times fast, um, I found that year over year, the correlation is almost zero for that when you look on average. Now, are there certain running backs who probably do not fit into that category like a Nick Chubb? 100%. I'm not going to say we shouldn't expect Nick Chubb to be good next year because running backs generally have no correlation. But just so you know, the running backs really didn't have any correlation there. Whereas when I looked at receivers, it was, you know, not huge, but it was around 0.2 for, for the correlation there. So that's first. Uh, number two, when you're looking at the consistency on something like a second contract, so you want long windows of positive performance, only about 15% of the season samples that we have for these runner season samples, only about 15% of those were part of a four year 
I'm sorry, sorry, part of a three-year streak of positive plus minus. So only 15% of the time with these running backs, and these are all running backs who got at least 50 carries in a season, so they're not, you know, scrubs. Um, only 50% of the time could they could any running back put together three straight seasons, right? So if it was a random thing, let's think about a random thing, it would be 50-50 for year one, it would be 25% for year two, and it would be 12.5% for year three. If you were just randomly flipping a coin on whether or not it'd be positive. So it's only slightly higher than that for running backs. Whereas for receivers, um, it was over 40% of the receivers were can get a positive for a four-year sample. And these are receivers who ran at least 200 routes. So it looks like, yeah, the receivers are in the game are con- traditionally adding value. And we're finding that to be the case. So again, that's the problem with potentially paying these guys as past performance is not indicative necessarily of future results for a lot of players. Okay. Uh, the second caveat I'll throw out there is that when you look at the position itself and how the different features play into value, play into what is valuable for a running back, um, the features relating to volume, in other words, the feature in this in this one is a rushing attempts per game. That feature is not nearly as indicative of a efficient running back as for a receiver, the amount of routes that they're running and the amount of targets that they're getting, right? So the amount of downs that are being used to, to attempt to get them the ball um, is much more indicative of someone who is even better on a per play basis, not just better overall, but better on a per play basis as far as adding value on the field. So running backs are earning opportunities through coaches' decisions almost entirely, right? I mean, how they play is part of it and how the coach views them and whether the coach is willing to give them the ball or not. But you just literally have to turn around and hand them the ball for them to get an opportunity. A receiver, is getting a coach's decision to get on the field, which is important and, and has signal to it, but even further so is getting a signal through their ability to earn targets. And that, that, that level, the ability to earn targets versus the ability to earn a rushing attempt, there is actual signal coming from on the field, getting open, getting those targets, having the quarterback continue to target you. I mean, some of it's going to be, you know, formulaic. Some of it's going to be you're running an RPO and you're looking at the, the guy running a slant. Some of it's going to be a screen pass. Some of it's going to be a function of the progression of your reads. But over time, you know, you're going to throw it to guys who are open or who can make contestant catches uh, on a consistent basis because you need to get yards, right? You're not just going to continually feed it to someone who doesn't deserve it. Whereas as a running back, it's a little bit more difficult to tell that, right? Uh, you could be consistently feeding it to someone. And we've seen, you know, seasons in the past where there have been top-notch running backs who are just not very efficient but are still getting the ball for reasons like they don't fumble for reasons that they just have confidence in the the coaches have confidence in them and so on I mean someone like Eddie George who was seen as maybe being in some people's minds you know a hall of fame caliber type of player you know he was he was just not producing pretty well but he was given the ball over and over and over and over and over again okay so that's part of it not as much signal from that And when you look into that, what's interesting is the most efficient group on a per play basis, when I did a sample clustering of these different players, the most efficient group is what I'm calling the Sproles cluster. Now, they don't all look like Darren Sproles in this, but they are the cluster that had 
the highest per play explosiveness. So the ability to get generate 15 yard runs, the highest per play elusiveness, which means avoiding tackles on a per play basis, the highest per play yards after contact, the highest success rate and the highest grade of any of these clusters, but their volume was, I think the third or fourth lowest, maybe fourth, I mean, it was like fourth, fifth lowest out of the 12 clusters. So it's a low volume, right? So this low volume cluster was able to produce better on a per play basis where you wouldn't see that as much for the receivers, right? I mean, there are some lower volume target deep threats who did pretty well in producing on-off splits, but not nearly to this degree. So the question is, why is that, right? And why are we maybe seeing that top running backs who you're paying a lot of money to who are going to be workhorses, right? Why are they not producing more on a per-play basis than these these other running backs? Uh, The first concern is selection bias here. Uh, And particularly would be like the down and distance situations, which a Darren Sproles gets the ball are going to be different than when a, I don't know, like a, a big bruising Mike Allstott or Michael Bush back in the day, or some of these, you know, Lendale white, uh, some of these guys, uh, LeGarrette Blunt, uh, Blunt who shows up on here as a, as a poor volume guy, it's not gonna be the same situation that they're getting the ball. Right. And therefore it's a selection bias there. I looked at, down distance field position box players all that there isn't that big of a difference i think the sproles cluster maybe gives a little bit too much of a of a of a thought that it's someone like a darren sproles where really it encompassed also some bigger backs and encompassed a bunch of people they just were not high volume guys but they were very elusive very explosive okay so that's number one so i don't see selection bias in, in that sort of way what i do think happens though is i do think at running back there's a better chance to find guys who are good on a per play basis, but cannot handle a large workload, right? They could like, whereas for receiver, it's not like for Will Fuller, you're not for for Will Fuller. It's probably a bad example. Let's think of someone like, uh, I don't know, Ted Ginn or someone who was a deep threat, right? Or Deshaun Jackson is another good one. It's not like they're not getting a bunch of targets because you're afraid they will break down, okay? Um, or they're not getting a bunch of routes because you're afraid they will break down. Yeah, maybe Deshaun Jackson wasn't the best example since he's been a very injury-prone guy, but you know, you, you don't get injured as much. You don't have to worry about, because you're just not, it's not as much volume of, of being tackled, right? And you're being tackled by defensive backs for the most part, as opposed to defensive linemen who can really hurt you. So you know, being targeted and potentially catching five balls a game versus eight balls a game, which is hugely significant, right? For a receiver, three additional tackles. It's not that big of a deal. It's only eight times a game. Now for a running back, if you're going to take your Darren Sproles and you're saying, you know, we're going to run you 15, 20 times a game. Maybe he just can't do that. Right? Like he just physically can't do that. I don't, you know, I think he probably could better than some people think he had a billion carries in college, but anyway, maybe the perception is that he just can't do that. Right? So the reason that his, his volume isn't there isn't because there's a real signal from less of less efficiency, right? That there would be for a wide receiver, but because he just can't handle it. So you can be more efficient on a per play basis and a bad option to be given the ball every single down. Whereas your Nick Chubbs, your 
your Derrick Henrys, your Ezekiel Elliott's. These are big back guys who you know you can give the ball to them every single down. And because of that, they get this enhanced value. They're going to have enhanced value when you look at a seasonal total for something like PFF plus minus. But it doesn't mean necessarily they're better than combining running backs who don't have the same sort of durability but can be on a per play basis efficient on seven carries. Like if you could run two running backs in the Sproles cluster, let's say one for seven carries, one for eight carries. If you can identify the guys who are, who are really elusive, right. And really explosive, they may be undervalued by the NFL because you're, because they're saying, well, we don't want to run these guys a whole bunch because they're going to get injured. Well, maybe combining those two is a lot better could get you better efficiency than the one running back who is 220 something pounds can take the punishment. Right. Um, but that size that they have to take the punishment may be detracting from their ability to produce on a per play rush basis. So because of that, again, that's another caveat to the value of these top, top running backs um, that you can maybe put together a committee, right? You only have one running back on the field at all times. <clears throat> you can maybe put together a committee of runners more easily to replicate that production than you can at wide receiver. Um, the downsides of the committee being, that they're probably even have less certainty year over year in their performance. So maybe you just end up having the wrong committee more often than if you had someone like Nick Chubb. So you get less certainty there. And I think sometimes certainty is a little bit overvalued. It's kind of like with kickers, how teams can go crazy for kickers sometimes on kicker contracts, on drafting kickers early, like we saw with Aguayo in Tampa Bay. It's because they just really want to feel certain about what's going on. I think teams really want to feel certain about running backs sometimes where they probably have to embrace the uncertainty a little bit more in that position. So there's that. Um, but the second thing is for, for these guys, when you're building it together, you're taking up more roster spots, right? And that is a cost that probably needs to be factored in how many guys you keep active on game day and so on and so forth. But I think even on short yardage situations, which you were going to say to yourself, well, this is when we really want to have a big back. I mean, I've done a lot of studies on work about, touchdown scoring over expectation. And even near the goal line, guys like Jamal Charles and others have come up, Sproles of others have come up being very, very good at scoring touchdowns there. So I think we overestimate how much pushing the pile is worth versus being able to hit the, um, the line of scrimmage quickly and exploit a hole very quickly um, with someone like Jamal Charles. And, and speaking of Charles, you know, he was part of one of the, he was the, one of the name clusters that I gave that was near the top. And of all the running backs that I looked at, who had at least, I think it was 300 carries in their first three seasons. Uh, so Chubb has gone through three seasons here. Chubb is right near the top as far as on a per play basis, what they what their assumed rate would be in PFF plus minus. But Jamal Charles was number one and kind of significantly number one. So again, not the biggest guy. Uh, I believe it was a third round pick in the NFL draft, despite the fact that he was a legit four, three something uh, uh, sprinter. And probably because people didn't know about the workload there. But having him as part of a committee, and you don't need to have a Thomas Jones like they had who's just plodding along, having you know Charles and maybe another type of Charles-adjacent uh, type of running back in there might be the best way to go in the NFL and why even the running back truthers are probably dancing and celebrating a little bit too quickly upon the results of this analysis. But go ahead and check that out. You can see my receiver piece I did too. I did one on offensive tackles and how important they are. Uh, for pass blocking, edge rushers on passing plays, and also coverage for cornerbacks uh, on passing plays. I think you'll see some intuitive and expected results combined with some insights that maybe are a little bit less 
intuitive that can help us understand the game a little bit more and then and go ahead and investigate. Uh, you know, go ahead and hit the film up and investigate after that. All right. Um, so before we get to the wide receiver uh, fantasy information here and who we can look at based upon the expected points tool, which I'll describe quickly. Um, after this, after the ad read, I'm going to hit my fantasy ad reads here. So Fantrax is one of our sponsors. So Fantrax is a free fantasy football league manager. It's the most customizable, easy to use, and feature-rich platform in the entire industry. And we're going to do some Fantrax leagues this season and some content related to that. So look out for that. You can have multi-team trades. You can have player salary and contract options, bonuses for TDs of different yardage, auto-generate player salaries, and so on and so forth. Fantrax, you can import any of your current roster leagues for completely free. Sign up and play now at Fantrax.com slash PFF and get a chance to win a trip to any regular season game for you and your entire league. Um, Make a league on Fantrax and then head out to a free Las Vegas Raiders game with your buddies if you want. Uh, fantrax.com slash pff the home of fantasy sports and the last ad read i'm going to throw it in here before i get into this and it is DraftKings. so college football season is just around the corner to celebrate DraftKings sportsbook america's top rated sportsbook app is putting new players in the center of the action with 200 dollars. that's right 200 dollars in free bets instantly if you bet one dollar or more on any college football game DraftKings sportsbook is safe reliable and secure located right here in the United States. So it's easy to deposit with your money at your convenience. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code PFF to receive $200 in free bets. And when you place a $100 bet on any college football game, that's promo code PFF to get $200 free in free bets instantly for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be older than 21, New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. All right, so let's hit the wide receivers and expected fantasy points tool. Um, okay, so the expected fantasy points tool is something that I developed with modeling, and it incorporates, it looks backwards, it incorporates down, distance, field position, location of the target, how, how many air yards there were, location on the field, whether or not it was to the, to the sidelines or down the middle, uh, whether or not it was on play action, and whether or not it was a contested catch. I found all of these to be very significant in determining uh, completion percentage expectations, which then relates to catch rate expectations, so how many catches you're, you're expecting from a receiver, and also important for yards after catch, depending upon you're going to get a lot more yards after catch in the middle of the field on play action than you're going to get on a non-play action to the sideline. I think that makes sense. Much more yards per um, yards after the catch on shorter passes and screens, of course. So all that is part of the equation. How close you are to the end zone, whether or not the target is in the end zone is going to affect very much whether or not you're expecting a touchdown or not. So then we come up with expectations for uh, receivers for their number of receptions, their number of yards, and their number of touchdowns. And then we can go ahead and flip that back in to come up with PPR or standard expectations for how many points you they would have scored if they were average. Now, if they were the average expectation. Now, of course, some guys are going to be higher or lower based upon their efficiency. But a lot of times we'll see regression with these numbers because um, it's still a low volume sport and there'll be regression. So I looked at the numbers from the 2020 season to come up with some conclusions for 
who drafting in 2021, very much so looking at current ADPs as part of this. That's important. Uh, the price points for these players are always extremely, extremely important. So the first conclusion I had, and maybe this isn't that controversial, was that Devontae Adams should be the first receiver chosen. He was through about mid-April when the Aaron Rodgers stuff dropped before the draft. He fell down from an ADP that was in, well, you know, in the first round, the late first round to um, middle to late second round. So there was a huge buy opportunity there. Now it swung back and I think it's probably getting close to where it was before, but in some leagues, Tyreek Hill will still be number one. It's just with Adams, you're just, you're just going on the fact that not only did he have a higher expectation than anyone by at least two expected fantasy points. And over someone like Tyreek Hill, it was two and a half expected fantasy points, but he also outperformed that last year by about six. Um, they didn't add a ton, right? So they got Randall Cobb floating around over there. They drafted Amari Rogers, but not that big of a deal. Um, he's just going to be a, a force in fantasy football. And there's going to be regression for him, but even with regression, the fact that you're getting that built in, uh, discount, I think, on his expect on what his expected numbers were versus some of these other guys like Diggs and uh, Tyreek Hill near the top. I think you, you got to go for it as him as the wide receiver one. Next, uh, Marvin Jones. I think he is set up to be the receiver to own, pro- potentially the leading receiver there. Now a lot of people push back and said he's not going to be the leading receiver. Well, you know what? Um, as of when I wrote this a week ago, DJ Chark was being was the wide receiver 34 in fantasy drafts. Uh, LaVisca Chenault was wide receiver 35 and Marvin Jones was wide receiver 55. So if you can get him more than 50 picks later, Hey, that sounds pretty good. Uh, he had a higher expectation than Chark last season. He was wide receiver 24 in expectation. Again, uh, he was with a different team, but he's going to carry over here. I think well into this offense, Chark was 31st and Chenault was all the way down at 61st. So we're expecting a lot from Chenault. I love Chenault. Don't get me wrong, but it's somewhat crowded over there. We're kind of really projecting a lot for him to jump forward. So it's understandable that he's being discounted at 31 years old, but I think that's more than baked into his ADP as a potential reliable option for Trevor Lawrence. Uh, So scoop up a discount there in that ambiguous wide receiver core too, where no one's going higher than wide receiver 34. So that means you could get someone to really jump up above expectations. They're not being... There's still plenty of room for a dominant receiver to come out there. And we've seen Marvin Jones has been able to put up some pretty strong numbers in the past. Okay, next one. Forget the drops. Deontay Johnson is a top-notch option. Uh, you know, I like Clace, Clace, um, Chase Claypool a lot this year too. But by the expected points tool, this was a guy who underperformed his usage, right? But he was just getting a ton of targets. Now, he had 14 drops, and I think that really hurt his performance. He had a three-week stretch from weeks 12 to 14 where he dropped seven passes in those three weeks. Not great. Um, but if you look at him, he was the wide receiver eight in expected fantasy points last season, and now he's a positional ADP at wide receiver 24. So I think you can get a pretty good discount there. Now, on the negative side, I got to have a negative. You know, I had Nick Chubb last week, which people don't like to hear, but he doesn't have the expected numbers to really justify his top 10 ADP. For this week, it's another guy that no one wants to hear, and that's A.J. Brown. Now, Brown, last year, he was all the way down at wide receiver 30 in his uh, fantasy expected points per game based upon his usage. But he finished wide receiver 7 in his actual scoring because his efficiency was you know, through the roof. So that could continue this year. I think there's a lot of reasons why he is a player and why Ryan Tannehill as a passer could continue that. But let's, let's remember, Tannehill has been you know, one of the best passers in the NFL the last couple of years. Uh, Brown has a tailwind here from volume, and I think that's why people are liking him. But losing Corey Davis and 
Jonu Smith and then adding Julio Jones. In a lot of ways, I feel like that is a net negative for him as far as where the targets are going to end up going this year. If he was still in a situation where it was Josh Reynolds that he was competing against, yeah, I would say I think he's justified it as wide receiver 8 ADP that we're seeing here. Um, and Julio Jones is down at wide receiver 21. I think those should be closer together. Uh, Julio Jones is just a proven target hawk. He's a 20% hog, I should say. He's a he's a 20% target guy, season in, season out. I don't think that changed. He was very efficient in his time, um, in his time that he spent before he was injured last year. So there's just not enough of a discount for AJ Brown for me this season. I would rather go with Justin Jefferson in that sort of range, maybe even DK Metcalf in that sort of range. Uh, Brandon Ayuk is the must draft second year breakout candidate and his numbers were really, really good. Now the caveat here is he didn't play a lot with Debo Samuel and George Kittle, but even if he didn't as a rookie for someone to be a wide receiver nine and expected fantasy points per game is really, really good. No matter who your competition is. Right. And he's just running these extremely valuable routes. He was running a lot of slants over the middle of the field, which get a lot of yak. Um, a high completion percentage. And I think Trey Lance will be great at throwing those routes. And he was also used very creatively near the end zone. And I think that's also a strong, strong feature to have. And I think it's something that'll carry over um, this season in 2021. And he's kind of, you know, your downfield guy. And I would rather take a chance on your downfield guy in this system. Uh, George Kittle is that to a degree also, uh, no doubt. Um, I'd rather take a chance on that guy than a Depot Samuel right now. Um, his ADP is right in that, you know, 20 sort of range, mid to late twenties sort of range amongst wide receivers. So I think that's a good place to go. And he's just extremely strong. I was shocked to see that he was a top 10 receiver by uh, fantasy expected points per game. And it's just good to know that going forward as when you're trying to figure out who are the breakout candidates that are going to be the guy next season. All right. That's it for me today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, guys, go ahead and join the Discord that we have at PFF. We have an Unexpected Points channel. Uh, join the nerds there to talk about what's going on. And I would also say I appreciate everyone listening. Uh, we Next week, we're going to have an interview with a game management coach. I won't give away too many details, but I think it's going to be really, really interesting because this is really on the coaching side. Someone who's done not only legitimate defensive coaching but also game management he's kind of between roles right now because he was attached to um a head coach who was fired last season so hopefully that will who probably get a coaching job in the future and he'll continue on there but since he has this time it's really good to get in and get a window into his thinking not only what was going on during the season and a lot of stories of what was going on there but also you know training camp like i want to hear more about what's really going on behind the scenes in, in in training camp and i think he can provide that information as we're going through that this off season Okay, thanks so much for tuning in, and everyone, I'll be talking at you next week.